My guest today is Dr. Alfred Atanda. He's an orthopedic surgeon at the Alfred I. DuPont Hospital for Children in Delaware. Alfred and I talk about how he streamlines his care in a very innovative way. He's developed a telehealth system that a stunning 99% of his patients find to be a good way to get care. Dr. Atanda shares how telehealth saves his patients time and money while providing them with care that is approachable and easy to comprehend. And it's good for surgeons too. Enjoy. From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set, a podcast that explores the field's latest innovations with the pioneers at its cutting edge. I'm your host, Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. Thank you for joining us. So Alfred, welcome to The Surgery Set and welcome to Madison. Thanks so much for coming out from Philadelphia to join us. Thanks for having me. It's really fascinating talk that I had the privilege of going. Uh, normally, you know, we, we talk to our surgery grand round speakers, but I, I you and I have a mutual friend, Tom Braselton, mm-hmm. who's sort of the head of our telehealth and telemedicine program here, who put a bug in my ear to come to pediatrics grand rounds for a change, which is awesome because it starts an hour later. And uh, and, <laughs> nice. and actually have a chance to hear this talk that you gave. And I mean, you are an orthopedic surgeon, but we're here talking about telehealth and telemedicine and some of the ways that you've implemented that in your practice. Talk a little bit about, you know, maybe we should just start foundationally. Like, what to you is telehealth and, and telemedicine? What, are, what does that mean in this sort of era as we're talking about shifting care away from maybe like hands-on care to these virtual worlds? Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting. So, uh, I mean, to me personally, I, I feel like we have a very difficult time getting information and knowledge to patients. And in a traditional sense, they have to literally be in front of us or we have to be in front of them. But just with the advent of technology and all sorts of other industries in our lives, healthcare is now adopting some of that. And I think a lot of it is exploding. So I think being able to get the knowledge that's in my head from point A to point B very quickly in a way that the patients can digest it in a way that benefits them and even benefits me, I think is what really is at the essence of telehealth and telemedicine. It's so true. I feel that we live in the 2020s now, right? But medicine works in the 1970s, right? <laughs> we fax things around, right? You know, we will have patients drive hundreds of miles for us to, you know, talk to them for five minutes and, and lay hands on them in a way that may not be, be necessary or therapeutic, right? Mm-hmm. But it's just sort of like the way that things have always been done. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how you've sort of implemented these new strategies in, in your practice? Like, Versus sort of the old school, like everyone has to drive to see you in a clinic. You're doing all kinds of different ways of mm-hmm. reaching out to patients. Yeah, totally. Especially in orthopedic surgery, I mean, most of what we do, a lot of it is touching joints and, and, and limbs and extremities and bones. And it seems... And looking at x-rays. Right? And of course, looking yeah. at x-rays. But it, it, it seems kind of counterintuitive that I would be a quote-unquote leader in telehealth and telemedicine as an orthopedic surgeon. But... Basically, what I did was I just looked at my practice, I looked at my patients, I looked at the way I was delivering healthcare, and I realized that a large segment of my patients were just receiving information from me and and knowledge. They would come and they'd be in front of me and I would examine them because they were there, but ultimately what they needed at that particular time was, was my advice and my guidance and my experience. So that's what led me to kind of try to distill out some of those people who need to physically be there versus the people who can be at home or be in other clinics or be in other places and still get the quality health care that they desire mm-hmm. without having to do all the traveling and missing work and missing school and all that sort of stuff. So how has that changed your practice? I mean, 
five years ago, if you were seeing every patient in the clinic or going down to the emergency room and mm-hmm. you know seeing patients who've been transferred in from all around, like what does it look like now? Uh, I probably have about five percent or so of my patients that I see virtually. It's not a lot. I mean, I still am a, a regular traditional physician, but I think I have a better handle of, of streamlining who comes in to see me. I think we have a better way of triaging who comes in because now we have this option of keeping people out of the clinic. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have more slots and more time open for those kind of complex patients and surgical patients to come in because we've freed up some slots every day. Not a whole lot, maybe two or three slots a day yeah. to keep people kind of where they're at. And it, it, it's really changed the overall landscape of our clinic. Yeah. And I think patients get very excited about it. Now certain patients are talking about it. Their, their friends have had a telehealth visit and they mentioned it to them and they come in and they ask me about it. So it's creating a little bit of a buzz also. Yeah, you've talked to patients about what they think about this, right? Mm-hmm. I, like one of the figures in your talk, I was sort of like 99% of patients think this is like a really great yeah. thing, right? And it saves them time and money and you estimate that it's like $50 in travel associated mm-hmm. costs to come to a clinic, you know, for a patient and heaven knows how much, you know, time off work and right. taking kids out of school. And So are you FaceTiming or, or you know, using some sort of, you're using a video platform to mm-hmm. reach patients in their home and, and just talk to them about their condition and yeah, so what to do about it, how they're doing after surgery, that kind of thing? It's similar to FaceTime. We use HIPAA secure apps. I mean, there's yeah. tons of medical platforms out there, but we use a couple. They use similar ones here at, at, at Wisconsin, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah, we set up a time. We schedule a time just like you would schedule an in-person visit, and we would talk through anything that has a camera and a microphone. And typically, there are patients that I already know and patients that I've met and have a rapport with. So it's usually for follow-up, post-operative discussions, surgical discussions, reviewing imaging, not necessarily brand new problems, but mostly established patients that were just kind of checking in about something. But you've also done some work around ED visits, and I was really struck by one of the statistics that you quoted in your talk, which was 37% of these orthopedic ED visits that you looked at were patients who didn't necessarily need to have been transferred to your emergency department. Right. And instead, like, you could have identified earlier on that, like, they were appropriate for following up in, the, in a clinic or an outpatient setting. Yeah, I mean, that was very striking. Most of our orthopedic patients, um, when they get hurt, it's usually at night and on weekends, mm-hmm. and they pick the path of least resistance. They just go to whatever's open to them and whatever's accessible to them, and that's usually urgent cares and ERs in their community. And that's fine. But I think there's sometimes a lot of fear on the patient's side as well as the provider side to be able to get in front of a specialist and make that definitive call, which is a reasonable fear to have. Yeah. I think by interjecting myself and moving my knowledge to that first point of contact, a fair amount of those people can be treated appropriately in that first urgent care or in that first ER and don't necessarily have to make that trip to us. And that's something that we haven't really noticed all that much because nobody really dug deep into the data into the information that's present but we're finding that there's a lot of opportunities to really streamline how people come to us uh, from ER to ER transfers. I wonder like how much do you think that we're sort of impeded by these perverse incentives that we have in medicine to see these patients because only then can we bill for them at least historically right the the model has been like someone is in an ER somewhere else and that ER calls and talks to you about it you're now like in the chart as having issued an opinion but like you're not sending them a bill whereas you know if you ask that patient to be put in an ambulance driven two hours to your institution and then you go down and see them in the emergency room and say oh yes you don't need an operation (laughs) you can come see us in clinic right now at least like 
you're covered from a medical legal, legal perspective. You've right. actually billed for that consultation, right? And kind of never mind that like the patient's been extremely put out for something that they never actually had to leave their home community for. But the medical industry has kind of benefited right. from that pattern. How do you sort of get around that issue? It's really hard, you know, and most of that comes from being in a fee-for-service landscape. And I think that coupled with the fact that a lot of providers, specialists and generalists, have a small fear of liability and legal issues. And again, like being, doing things over the phone and, and managing patients when they're in other institutions without being able to put your hands on them and formally evaluate them and formally document everything, depending on your risk tolerance, you are going to suggest that they come to you, knowing full well that they may not even need to be there, but at least it makes you feel better. Right. You can formalize it. You can document it. You can kind of wipe your hands clean and know that you crossed all your T's and dotted all your I's. I think most of that comes from just the healthcare climate in general and issues with liability, but also in a fee-for-service world, nobody says anything because when you go and get this child and you bring them, lots of people make money. The transport team makes money. The emergency room bills, orthopedics bills, a consultation. God forbid they get x-rays when they come to you. So it is yeah. something that generates revenue, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the most appropriate thing to do, specifically from a patient standpoint. And particularly like in a quaternary center where, you know, for every bed taken up by a non-operative patient who could have been managed outpatient right now, some patient who really needs that like advanced level of care, it can't get can't get in. I think, you know, in that mindset, we often shoot ourselves in the foot because by using fees and then revenue as the primary driver, we are inadvertently creating more issues and problems down the line yeah. that we may not be able to quantify and measure as easily as, easily as we can measure just direct What's fees. In your bank account. But yeah. I'm just, my gut tells me that it's probably creating more downstream problems than if we were willing to accept a little bit less fee and revenue but they keep the people out where they need to be. Right. At least when you look at the whole healthcare ecosystem. Yeah. And to say nothing of like patient satisfaction, right? Right. I mean, you've, you're, the patients with whom you're working love this program. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> and it's not replacing their like having the ability to see a surgeon, right? It's like we may overestimate how excited people are to like take time off work and school and drive and try to park at the hospital and come and wait for half an hour in a waiting room and only to see us for five minutes. And we're like... Well, they love, you know everybody wants to see their surgeon in person. Eh, maybe not. Like that, that may be our egos more than mm-hmm. than patients' actual interest. Right. right. Especially as more and more patients find out that these sorts of things exist. Yeah. I think there's going to be a lot more interest, and people are going to be asking for it. You may they may be in a small hospital, and the docs may suggest a transfer, and they'll be like, "Well, wait, isn't there a way that the docs, right, where you're sending me, can just look at my X-rays and, and make sure that it's necessary that I come?" Given that like every other aspect of everybody's life can now be done on their phone, right? right? Like, why are like, we why like, can't driving in exactly to like do this to have someone look at an X-ray in a different place when that X-ray is already made that trip. The other thing I thought that was really interesting that you talked yeah. about, something that I've thought a lot about in my own experience, right, is this issue of consents and and, and how oh, we yeah. talk to patients about procedures and the fact that we often are having these conversations in extremely bad circumstances, right? Like maybe mm-hmm. you've just told your patient they have cancer and now you need them to fill out this form, right? Are they hearing a single word you say? Or in a pre-op area, right, where like, the child is hungry, hasn't eaten all night, and is screaming, and like the grandparents have come to be there for the surgery, and the room is full, and you're sort of trying to go through some paperwork, right? You've now decided that you don't have to have those conversations at that moment. You can create mm-hmm. standardized video that would allow patients to, like, over a sandwich on their couch, watch an informational video that tells them everything they need to know in the comfort of their own home. 
own right. home where they can actually like have a chance of retaining this information, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's something that's bothered me for a while for many reasons. I mean, number one, obviously, you want the patients to be able to absorb and digest the information that you're trying to convey to them. Number two, transferring and conveying information takes time. You know, I have to physically stand there and talk to them. And when I'm talking to them, then other people in the preoperative holding area can't talk to them. So right. now they're not as effective and as efficient as they can be. We may be delaying the patient going into the operating room. There's a lot of downstream effects. Yeah. And if you're doing all of that, and on top of that, the person isn't understanding what you're saying, then what's the point? And meanwhile, like you're delivering the same speech that you deliver a hundred times over and over and over, and over, right? Like you're basically reading from a script to begin with, except you're now running the risk of forgetting something. Right. Right. Whereas in a video product, like you have all the time in the world to like make sure you've included every element of that consent process that exactly. you want to do. Right. And that's been that's been really helpful. Yeah. You know, I haven't really quantified how effective it's been, but I, I know the patients like it. Yeah. And you them. email them a video the night before. That's yeah. Nice. I sent it to yeah. them, and the next day of surgery, I'm like, "Was that video helpful? Did it go over things? Did you understand everything?" And they seem very enthusiastic about it. Yeah. I think mostly because they can interpret it and digest it in a setting that's very comfortable, i.e their home right um, the night before surgery the day of surgery there's so many nerves they haven't eaten all these other kids are screaming they can't hear what you're saying yeah they're uh, nervous right? this is not their natural no. environment like you feel perfectly comfortable right but they're like what the hell is this yeah and they will sign anything you put in front of them whether they understand it or not so right. you might as well find a way to at least try to ensure that they're understanding as much as possible and i think that's yeah. the key it's not nothing to be able to then you know say your Honor, this is the video that I sent them describing this potential complication. Right. I mean, it, it, it's there. It's proof. Like, this is, you know, you, it's not like your word versus their word that you talked about, like, the risk of infection. Right? I'll show them the video. Yeah. I so mean, it's exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it just seems like such a, like I said, like, medicine has so much inertia, is so resistant to change. And understandably, right? Like, we don't want to, like, just start doing stuff randomly. Right? That's how people die. Mm -hmm. um, but... At the same time, like, there's nothing that says that, like, 1955 was the pinnacle of how medicine should be practiced, right? And, like, we must never, like, adopt these new technologies right. because it's not what Harvey Cushing did, right? It's like... And everything should be based on that. Yeah. And I do think that that, you know, I was having a discussion yesterday about some of the telehealth work that I'm yeah. doing. And we're trying to, basically trying to decide on a title for some of this work that I, I do for this group called the Surgical Collaborative of Wisconsin here, where my, I'm sort of in charge of, of collaborative learning opportunities, right? Mm -hmm. Where we like create, it's not exactly telehealth or telemedicine, right? But there's no direct patient relationship, but it's how we as physicians at a sort of quaternary center can help rural surgeons or even just people who like mm -hmm. don't like study this all the time, right? Series. Like it's an educational series where we can like have a conversation with people, but you know, have it be a conversation, not like watch this PowerPoint or like listen to us talk for an hour, but like we want to talk to you for 10 or 15 minutes about some didactic thing. And then we're going to have a conversation to understand how this would be able to work in your practice, what the barriers are. We're going to learn from you. You're going to learn from us. There's going to be sort of this democratization of knowledge, right? right? And so I think of that as collaborative learning. And we are having a talk, like, should we call it tele-learning or tele-collaborative? Yeah. And I was, you know, and, and in your talk as well, like, there's all this focus on like, telehealth and telemedicine. And I, is it telehealth and telemedicine or is it health? It's health and, and medicine. medicine. Like it, it's just a different it doesn't way matter. That, like the vehicle doesn't have to be part of the title, right? right? Like we do health. We sometimes do it in person, and we sometimes do it over the internet, and we sometimes have you watch a video. Like it's all health, right? Mm -hmm. It's all the practice of medicine. That this sort of I feel like hanging this label of like tele on it somehow cheapens it, right? It it's like 
it, it it's reductive to say like oh like this is some sort of not true medicine it's, it's telemedicine, telemedicine right? right but it's really just medicine done in a different way it's just a different tool to convey information from yeah. point A to point B and that's all it is and sometimes it goes to other providers sometimes it goes to patients sometimes it's in person sometimes it's virtual sometimes it's over email sometimes it's over phone right but it's all you know luckily we have lots of different vehicles to get information around but you're right i think by labeling it something separate it makes it sound like it's not quite medicine yeah telemedicine but over time as people get more adapted to it and used to it it'll probably fade yeah and now we call it banking whereas it used to be e-banking and mobile banking and e-commerce and all this stuff now people just say oh i was shopping and it just happened to be online on an app. right you never like say assume that like that means a grocery cart nowadays right, right? <laughs> but like it was not long ago where that would have been it's different you had a mental map of like someone right standing in line at the bank to like right. deposit their check i mean yeah. when was the last time any of us did that uh, yeah. probably a long time <laughs> <laughs> well it's so awesome to have you join us as a, as a real thought leader in how to to think about these things how as an individual to create programs totally um, right i mean this is something that you've done of your own interest and your own volition in a, in a program that has been sounds like very accepting of this idea of doing different things but it's not like you waited for like senior administrators to come down to you and say please develop a telehealth program right. you were like it'd be great if i could talk to my patients on this platform and then you did right right like it's the barriers to entry it sounds like are not maybe as huge as, as yeah, we need to think of them as we people. had a lot of administrative support and there was kind of a, a baseline telehealth program in existence but i think they were definitely trying to get providers to, to become early adopters mm -hmm. and it just was very fortuitous that i was interested in doing this for my own orthopedic patients and no other orthopedic providers had done this yet yeah so teaming up with our hospital administrators was very key but you're right I mean I didn't wait till somebody told me to do it as an innovator you have a fire in the belly and you think about something or something you want to improve or make better yeah and you just do your best to try to get after it and, and do what you can make the system work for you rather than sort of waiting for the system to instruct you on how to do it right and there's a lot of that be too. the change yeah and there's a lot of that too yeah of course right and it's I mean, obviously like you can't just go completely off on your own and start like, you know, giving patients your FaceTime right. number, right? <laughs> and just like, right, there's, there are systems and ways of doing it, but like, it's so cool to hear about, you know, this this innovative work that you're doing and championing and, and now, you know, evangelizing around around the country. So. Thanks so much. It's been a great, great opportunity for me to be able to come out here. Yeah. It's been awesome. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. And I'm sure we'll be in touch. Totally. Next time on The Surgery Set, I sit down with UW cardiac surgeons Amy Fiedler and Jason Smith. They recently brought a lot of attention to the University of Wisconsin when they were among the first in the United States to successfully perform a DCD heart transplant. DCD, or donation after circulatory death, is an emerging method in transplant that allows doctors to obtain donor organs after the heart stops, which expands the pool of donors. They talk about how you can remove a heart that's stopped, restart it, and transport a beating heart in a box that keeps it warm and healthy. We talk about the technology and techniques behind this new method and its promising potential. The future is now. Talk to you soon. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Invite your friends to listen in. And if you're feeling generous, please rate us on your favorite podcast app. It really does make a huge difference. Thanks. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by J.P. Swenson. 
Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. Visit us at surgery.wisc.edu where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Wisc Surgery, and I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, from all of us here at The Surgery Set, thank you for listening. Oh, Wisconsin.